spend less than you make. You don't need the new car. Yeah, and, and then buy a duplex before you have a family. <laughs> those are the things that I, I, I'd at least tell myself, you know, because those two things, three things would have probably made a difference earlier in my life. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires and Vell Podcast. This is episode number 212. Clark, how's it going? What's going on in your world? Dude, nothing much. What's going on with you? Thanksgiving's coming up. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, man. We're going to see some supply shortages with Turkey. I've read, read a few articles, man. You better get your turkey early this year. Oh, really? I, I actually haven't read that. What are they saying? I, I think there's going to be a little bit of a shortage with some of the, the normal fixings for Thanksgiving, you know, whether it's turkey or stuffing or whatever. It's going to, there's going to be some empty shelves. So get your rolls, get your turkey, whatever you want for Thanksgiving. You might want to get it early this year before it runs out. But that doesn't affect you because you do brisket, right? That's right, man. You know what? I ordered my brisket several weeks ago. So I'll be picking up my brisket here, I think on the 19th or the 20th. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, hopefully they didn't run out and didn't tell me, but they took my money already, so I think I think I'm good. I ordered it from Franklin here in Austin, so it's a it's a it's a good tradition. We still do t- a little bit of turkey usually, but that's my wife's prerogative. I got I always got to have my brisket for Thanksgiving. <laughs> so we've got a a question from Richard went on our website and and through Speakpipe asked a question, so we'll play that now. Hello, this is Richard. Wanted to get your thoughts on self-directed IRAs um, and if the millionaires use that as an investment vehicle for their overall growth. Thank you. So, Clark, self-directed IRAs, how many millionaires do you think we've talked to that have used that vehicle? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And thanks, Richard, for for, uh, calling in about it. I mean, this and HSAs are the two things that have surprised me and that we haven't seen as much as I thought. I mean, that's just my take. Correct me if I'm wrong. Or I mean, we're starting to hear more in our our interviews, HSAs. I think it's becoming more and more popular. But we don't interview a lot of millionaires that have over ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 in their HSA. And then self-directed Roths or self-directed retirement accounts is another one that we don't hear about too often. I, I can only remember a handful of people to do this. So, you know, I don't know if that's, we don't get to it or what, but I think it's not as commonly used. And I don't know why. I mean, it's an interesting take. Obviously, you hear about Mitt Romney and others who have big self-directed retirement accounts. Peter Thiel, I think, is the other big one that's been in the news. And now Congress is trying to do away with that or change the rules. But yeah, not too many, Jace, right? Am, Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, no, it, it it is definitely something you and I have discussed that we've been surprised at, but I also don't have a self-directed either. So I'm one to one to talk there on the HSA. It's completely opposite. I, I've I've been building up my HSA for quite a while, but the self-directed is is interesting. I think because one, it it does offer some tax benefits to to be able to invest in some of these alternative investments. So I guess the question would be for some of these real estate professionals, why they don't, you know, if they're, if they're going to acquire a bunch of rentals and they plan on kind of trading up for a while, maybe why don't they put those in 
a self-directed. Now I do know, obviously gets a little, a little tricky with the accounting, you know, the income and expenses have got to kind of flow in and out of those accounts. And you basically are signing up for not touching those for 20, 10, 20, 30 years, however, however long until you've, you've got access in terms of not taking the penalties to, to access those early or withdraw that money early. I think the same is for maybe small business investments too. But, you know, just from my personal take that that's the biggest reason why I haven't used self-directed. I, I kind of look at my retirement accounts as those that I'll probably utilize with public securities mainly. However, I, I do plan as long as the, the rules are in place down the road here to, to do some self-directed with my, with my Roth. But the other thing too, I think is, Sometimes it takes a little while for those to get built up to then make investments that are worthwhile. I mean, you're not going to go self-direct a $10,000 investment, right? I don't know. What's your take, yeah. Clark? And the what about you? Are, it's a few thousand dollars, a couple percent or something every year. And I think you pay an asset management fee to the intermediary that does it. Everything has to flow through somebody. So no, I, I agree. It doesn't make sense until you kind of have a critical mass in a retirement account. But I think we've talked previously. I, I'm familiar with one company that I know a couple of people have had good experiences with. So if you're looking for somebody that could manage a self-directed Roth or who to go out to, um, who to ship that out to, then let us know right in. We're happy to provide a recommendation. But I mean, I, I agree. It's something we, we don't hear too much about. Are, are you going to self-direct any in the future, Clark? Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of the same as you. I think retirement accounts is mostly in the market, but hard to say, right? If you have a really good opportunity, maybe that's something you think about. Yeah, I think it. You know, it's about the time horizon too, right? Like you traditionally, you put these in public securities, and it's like, well, I'm not touching that forever. You put something into a private investment, and say you are do want to sell that piece of real estate, or you do want to do this, and you get a big windfall, and it's like, well, you're not touching that for years either. Whereas if you got that windfall, that's not in a you know, retirement account that you're not going to touch till you're 59 and a half, you can utilize that cash and do something else with it. But at any rate, thanks for writing in or, or, or recording this on our website. Once again, if you've got a question for a millionaire, we'd love to have you, you know, go to our website, millionairesinveld.com and uh, record a question just like Richard did. This week, we have Nick, the human resource officer in the Army National Guard. He has a net worth of just over a million bucks, about 65% in real estate between primary residence and a handful of rentals and spread amongst and some spread amongst various retirement accounts and a little bit of cash. Also, Nick, thanks for your service. And also, thanks. We just passed Veterans Day. Thank you, all those service members out there. Appreciate your service as well. We, were, we are going to highlight a few here. Uh, over the next coming weeks who are in the military and Nick is, is, is one of our first here, but we've had done several interviews with, with several great military members and, and discussing their journeys and kind of the intricacies that, that they encounter. And so I'm going to be excited to have several of those on the show. Last week we had David. He's in his sixties net worth of over $2 million, extensive holdings in silver and other precious metals. And he's had quite the interesting career path that's landed him in the, the financial industry. So which is that good check out that's episode 211 and without any further delay let's get into the episode today with nick nick what's going on thanks for joining hey thanks um both jason clark for having me um i'm, I'm glad to be here so yeah it'll be fun so just give us we'll obviously jump into your story and your allocation in detail but just give us a quick overview on on who we're talking to here yeah again i'm nick yeah i'm, I'm from uh, the great state of washington in the pacific northwest 
Um, I'm currently a human resources officer in the Army National Guard, and um, I think we're just over a million on net worth that we've, my wife and I have accumulated both through real estate and savings. Awesome. Good for you. Congrats. And how is it broken up? Uh, currently, about 65% of what we have is real estate. Again, it's all single family homes. Uh, 16% in, in non-retirement accounts, uh, 15% in retirement accounts, and then the rest is what we just keep in, in kind of our cash reserves for both us and, and the rentals as well. Okay. And the 65% in real estate, I assume that includes your primary mortgage. So the 65% in real estate, is, yeah, it includes our our, our personal home. Yeah. And then again, that's, that's the net worth is subtracting out all of our, our debts. Okay. And then the remainder in the real estate, everything outside of your primary home or primary residence, what is it? Is it single family investments, multifamily syndication yep. investments? What is it? So, so all, all our single family investments, um, all of them are uh, at least the first three were homes that we had personally lived in and then moved out of and converted into uh, rentals. And then the most recent two are just straight investment properties that we bought with no intention of living in. Okay. Interesting. So six total homes here, right? Five yeah, rentals yeah. and then your your primary mortgage. So I want to jump into that, but maybe let's just first attack these retirement and non-retirement accounts. So between the two, it's about 30% of your net worth. How yeah. are those invested? Mutual funds, index funds, single stocks, bonds? Yeah. So um, because I'm, I'm, I'm both a, like a, in the Army National Guard and a federal employee, I have TSP, so the Thrift Savings Plan. And um, I invest uh, 100% into what's called the C fund, which I believe mirrors the um, S&P 500 or something similar to that. Uh, when it comes to other retirement accounts, both for both my wife and I, we have Roth IRAs that are 100% stocks and we're a strong in the uh, VTSAX, you know, kind of believer realm. Um, so we keep we keep everything in VTSAX. So have you always maxed those out since you started working? Is that relatively new? So interesting. I, I as I've kind of uh, my income has grown over the years, I slowly increased to the point where I was maxing out my 401k, the TSP. And though I, I've recently adjusted that thought process, um, but as far as the IRAs uh, every year, as much as we possibly could, Granted, it hasn't been very long with the IRAs, but um, that's kind of a new, sure. a new piece for us. And do you have IRAs for both you and your wife? Yes, for both of us. Okay. And then the non-retirement investment accounts, that's pretty much the same makeup you said, right? Like VTSAX? Yeah, it is 100% VTSAX and it's just in a um, just my taxable brokerage account. So is the thinking there to keep that, I mean, I guess you call it non-retirement accounts, is the goal there to withdraw it and buy additional real estate or what's the so, thinking there? Really, and, and our thought most recently was to, because, we, you know, the last couple of years we've had an extremely high savings rate. Uh, we, the idea was that we would start paying off the rentals, but instead of chipping away at them with the cash flow from each of the other rentals, like snowballing them onto the mortgages, you know, starting with the smallest debt first, we decided to stockpile everything into the brokerage account, allow the, the market to kind of let do its thing. And then once we've achieved enough to essentially sink an entire mortgage, we would do that. And, and so we originally had planned to pay off our smallest mortgage this December. However, last September, uh, an opportunity jumped in our lap 
and we could not say no. So we um, purchased and closed on another rental in October. And so we used about half of the funds that we were originally going to use in order to um, pay off, maybe a little less than half, but we were going to pay off a, a mortgage and, and we secured another rental property, a, a cash loan property. And so that that kind of delayed our paying off mortgages by about nine months. Um, but we've acquired another asset that's that's producing income for us. So th- these five rentals, six homes, five rentals, when you're primary, are any of them paid off? I guess of the six, are any of them paid off? Or do no, you have mortgages on each of them? No, we um, we had one that we purchased back in 2018, maybe 19. I can't remember now. Might have been 18 that we bought cash. The idea was that we bought it cash with the intent to, um, you know, do a cash out refi uh, once we had uh, fixed the property up. So we bought that one cash. And then about 18 months later, we refied the, the money out, got everything that we wanted back. And so we got 100% of our money out. And then now that we have a, a cash flowing property that we're pretty much in for nothing, you know, we just had our money tied up for 18 months. So are the mortgages on 15 or 30 years? They're all 30 years. But again, we we do have a plan to, I think currently, we, we conservatively, we think we can pay them off in maybe five or six years. Wow, wow, wow. And then live off the, or have that cash flow, I guess, to live off of, right? In the future. To do whatever we want. Yeah, we've we've talked about whether, if that, if that would be the turning point to then just live off the money, maybe retire early, but that would potentially limit my ability to get to access um, my federal employee pension, though, again, uh, that pension is probably a very small slice of the pie in the overall pie uh, that you know, may or may not get there. You never know what happens. <laughs> so if you just think about the real estate or the five rentals, if those were all paid off, how much in cash flow would that be monthly? Uh, monthly, it would be closer to 65, uh, maybe more. Maybe seventy thousand a year. No, that's great. Yeah, seventy grand insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good for you guys. So, okay, I want to come back to the to the real estate because I think that's really a bulk, right? At sixty five percent and five rental properties, three of which you were residences that you lived in, right? And then converted. So, I want to come back to that because I think that's a big piece. And I don't think we've had somebody. Jace, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think we've had somebody on the show that's lived in three different properties and then kept them all as rentals. You know, I think somebody's lived in one, kept it as a rental, and then bought another rental. But doing it three times is, I, I think, unique. Um, well, we something we, we haven't heard on the show. Yeah, we started off a little. So my wife and I were. Uh, let's see, it must have been 2010 when I nine or ten when I bought my first house. So I lived in a little two bedroom house. I was I just graduated from college. My wife had bought a house while she was in college. Granted, she bought her house in the middle of the, you know, they're when they were loaning money to anybody. So she had a house that she bought with a 20% down, but the 20% down was a, it was funded or uh, it was loaned on a, as a, like a home equity line of credit, not a line of credit, but home equity loan. So she had a, her down payment was a home equity loan and a mortgage. <clears throat> so her house was hundred percent financed. And she was wow. 19 years old when she bought the house, I think. And it was, what was the loan against? She had other, some sort of other collateral? No, no, it was all the house. This was in 2007 or eight when, mm-hmm. again, they were just, I think the, the lending practices were a little looser. Right, uh, they were kind of, giving it to your dog. To, you yeah, know. yeah, which is, I think, what got everybody in trouble in, in the end. So so after we got married, her we decided to move into her house. 
and we started renting mine out. And that's kind of where it started, right? We we just like, okay, it wasn't I wasn't going to make any money off of selling this house because I bought it with a VA home loan, zero down. So I I had no equity in this home after a couple after a year or two. So we decided to just rent it out and and at least pay the mortgage, which shortly we found out that the rent more than covered the the mortgage payment. We we were able to cash flow, you know, a couple hundred bucks on it, which was nice. And then after we got married, I accepted a job in Tacoma. And uh, so we moved and her brother was kind of renting for a little while. We didn't know how long it was going to be the work. It it wasn't, but then the work sent me to South Carolina for six months. And then when we came back, I got a permanent position uh, where, where in the office that I'm in now. And that's when we decided to rent her house you know, her brother moved out. We re-rented it to a regular tenant, and then we bought our third home together, uh, where we're in Spanaway, where we live now, and lived there for a few years. Raised our children. I think we'll raise the one we had, and then had another, and then we bought it about three or four years later. So I bought the house in 2013, right? Which was probably the best time to buy a home. It was probably the bottom of the market to buy a home. So in 2017, as it's coming back up, uh, we bought number four. And moved into it and then rented out that home that we live in, uh, that we lived in. And then that was in 17. And then in 18, we bought number five. We bought number six uh, with just a conventional 25% down. <laughs> you guys are like buying a house every year almost. Well, and then, we, we really weren't planning on it. Like I said, we, <laughs> we were planning. We really, we had a, we had a plan. Um, you know, we have our, we've got a little goal up on the, effectively, you know, did the math, right? The math said that we can probably pay off a mortgage about every year um, at our current savings rate by snowballing the cash flow, right? So not keeping any of it. Pay it off every year. Oh, that's where, and that's where you yeah, go back so, to in yeah, the five or six off. years, you'll have it all paid off. Yeah, so we pay off one, essentially that principal payment now that becomes more cash flow. And so we kind of did the math, right? So as we pay off the mortgages, you know, alternatively, I could just sink into the stock market and probably make the same or more of a return. But um, our calculated return on investment there was, okay, if I pay off this mortgage, the return, the cash flow that I'm going to get back is about seven and a half, almost 8% return, which is pretty good. So as far as I'm concerned, and then, and then continually snowball that into each of the houses. And so, you know, granted we would be sinking, you know, several, what would probably be close to 600 and something thousand dollars into mortgages um, over the course of five years um, by snowballing all that. We were, our return, our you know initial return is about 8, 8% or so. Nick, is it just a math equation for you then when you were looking at deciding whether or not to pay down these other mortgages or to invest in another rental property? You said that the opportunity kind of popped up out of nowhere. Was it all math rate of return that you were it- looking at? So for me, it, it's, it's, it's definitely math. That is a, a heavy, you know, there is some, some risk that goes into it and, and being able to, uh, I think, kind of assume some of that risk, you know, buying another property, you know, like, like in this case where uh, an opportunity just dropped in our laps one day, somebody sent me an MLS uh, or a picture of a home and the numbers, when I, when I run the numbers, the numbers were amazing. And I knew I had to move fast because somebody else was going to come in there Luckily, they listed that house on a two-day list, um, and I was the first one in and, and got it. But other than that, yeah, we would have – the plan was to just sink money away and pay them off because, you know, in in five or so years, we could have uh, the cash flow to essentially live off of, though we probably wouldn't, at least not yet. 
but we could, right? We could live off the cash flow of our rental properties, knowing um, because we know how much they make, we know how much they cost, we we know. But buying another one, we don't know what's in the new house. You know, we do our due diligence, but things come up. There are little quirks with every house, and you don't know what's going to come up, and, and and you don't know what what's going to change. And so there's some some risk there. But when this opportunity came up, I just couldn't say no. So mathematically, yeah, I mean, it, it, everything penciled out for me. What rate of return are you looking for on that? So because, because I think we, we like to buy and hold. So I do look at a rate of return. It is one of the, it's just one of the things that I look at, but it's not the whole picture. Granted, if I get a huge rate of return, then it's it's probably going to happen. Um, but again, you know, some like my VA home loans, right? I put nothing down, so the rate of return is pretty high. If I'm going to get into a home, I think this last one, you know, we got into it, we were out of pocket. I think fifty one thousand, and so my my cash on cash returns, my rate of return was fourteen percent after closing costs and rehab and everything. So I'm I get a fourteen percent return on this on this new rental property, which is why I couldn't say no. And, and the cash flow is, is also really nice. You know, it's, it's, it's able to pull down about $600 a month. And, uh, whereas even if I went to this December pay off a house, I would have had to have sunk away, you know, almost twice as much, I think about 87 or so thousand dollars, I would have had to have essentially wiped out of my investment account in order to pay off a mortgage. And that would have only brought me what's that a five or or, or um, six hundred not even a six hundred I think it was a five I can go back and look but it's a only five hundred dollar return so I think I essentially pulled more money or pulled half as much money out and made more in cash my return was double to buy a new property than it was to um, pay off an existing mortgage which that's kind of the beauty of leverage right I can use less money to create more cash flow, which kind of stops me from ever selling my houses. I don't ever, I, you know, we always think about, oh, what if we sold one or, or did a 1031 exchange? And I don't know, we haven't ventured there yet, but on selling any of our properties, just because we know and like the homes, we like the people that we rent to, um, you know, and we, we like, we just like managing rentals, I guess. Why not continue to just con- buy homes instead of pay off the mortgages early? I don't know. The a deal like the one that I just got, I, I, I'm not actively hunting homes and searching. But if if someone throws me a line, you know, if someone throws me a property, I'm going to do the math. I'm going to look at the deal and see if it's even possible. And if it is, sure, why not? The, uh, where's the harm in throwing in an offer? Um, but until then, you know, we're we'll, like I said, we we we're going to continue down this path of starting to pay them off. And then if if we do happen to see something we want to buy and it makes sense, why not? It's going to just generate more cash flow, you know. And I think still we'll still get to the place we want to go. It just might slow us down a little bit because um, in the end, I think we're looking at five plus thousand dollars a month in cash flow in in a few short years. That's nice to have to, you know, oh, we want to go somewhere. Let's go. You know, it's what, who cares? It's one month rent or something, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's just a, a good feeling to know that I, we could get to a place where we'll have that kind of cash flow. Okay. Let's take a quick break from the episode and thank JustWorks for sponsoring today's show. 
Are you a small business leader or owner and looking for a new way to onboard and manage remote employees? Are you doing all of the HR tasks at your company? Well, JustWorks makes it easier for you to start, run, and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help. JustWorks can relieve you of some of the administrative tasks you don't love. You know, the stuff like running payroll, managing benefits, and figuring out state-by-state rules and regulations. JustWorks is the ultimate HR platform for small and growing businesses with simple software and expert support for benefits, payroll, HR, and compliance. They make it easier to hire and manage remote employees across all 50 states. Whether your team is in person or remote, you can give them access to national large group health insurance plans and manage onboarding, payroll, PTO, and compliance all in one place. Sure, you can do it all, but why do it alone? Find out how JustWorks can help your business by going to JustWorks.com. Again, that's JustWorks.com for more information. And thanks again to JustWorks for sponsoring today's episode. Will those five paid off give you sufficient cash flow for your needs, for your wants, and that's basically what the goal is? You said you're really not searching out additional deals right now. How far And how far are these geographically apart from each other? Oh, so... They're all in the state of Washington. All, all, all six homes are in Washington. Um, one of them is about two miles away from where I live. So we, we moved literally just on the other side of the hill. So one's two miles away, but the other, the other four are in eastern Washington. Uh, one is in my hometown of Waitsburg, just north of Walla Walla. Uh, and the other three are in the, uh, the Tri-City. So, uh, Richland and one in Richland, one in Kennewick and one in West, West. Richland, those are, I mean, in the Richland and West Richland are our original homes. And then the two we live in over in Spanaway, lived in in Spanaway. And then the one in Kennewick and in Waitsburg are purely investment properties. But so they're far away, but we have family in all the areas, right? So they're, they're we've got a pretty strong network of people to kind of help uh, manage the, you know, do help do some little things if something comes up or help us coordinate with, with contractors, if we need work done. But for the most part, we, we fix the properties up pretty nice to make them relatively low maintenance. Yeah, And you manage those all hundred percent thought process. Oh yeah. We, we manage them all. We actually manage all of ours. So our five plus another three. Oh wow. So we and manage you're taking, three others. you're taking a fee okay. on managing these others. Yes. Yeah. Very, very minimal. Um, we, uh, we charge, so my wife does most of it, uh, and she, I think it's just a hundred dollars um, per door for each of them. Oh. And I, Those are for family members or friends? Yeah, family and friends mostly, and because we already have we already have the network, we have the the software, we have we have the uh, systems in place to do everything, and so we just we just charge a hundred bucks to. And my wife does she she, which I think is probably less than 5% for most of the homes I think that she's renting maybe maybe closer to 7 on some of one of the smaller ones what what's Jay sorry to interrupt you what software do you use uh, we use Rentech direct and we, we use that one because it's it's it has everything it from soup to nuts it has everything that from the beginning of you know putting in a, a listing a rental getting applicants screening applicants all the accounting piece of it. Uh, and then at the end of the year, as we're getting closer to the end of the year, right? So now we can, then we'll push all of our 1099s through all through Rentech. And then of course, within that comes, there's a ins, uh, inspection, property inspection piece of that, that it uses a third party uh, software 
called Z Inspector, but it's it, it's all run through Rentech. So if we do a um, a move in or move out or an annual inspection, um, that report then gets published inside of Rentech into a file that we can either share with the tenant or or homeowner. So does that system do like do the accounting as well? It it does um, most uh, most of it. So we'll we'll reconcile it um, and kind of tweak some things if 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 we need to categorize something. But yeah, so it has all the categories built into it. It spits out a little schedule E uh, to help you know at the end of the year say hey what what expenses go to what that would generally line up with the schedule E. So then just going back to Jace's question, I think that the question was, is the, you mentioned earlier, 60 or 70,000, right? After these are all paid off, hopefully in five or six years in annual cash flow, is the 70,000 going to cover your annual living expenses? Oh yeah. And then some. So we, even with, so well, with the exception of my children's expenses, and because we, we value education and uh, so we send our children to private school and um, my wife recently got a job at the kids' school. And so her her income, 100% of it covers essentially their, their tuition at the private school, which is nice, right? So now she's essentially volunteering at the school uh, in exchange for tuition is kind of the way we feel about it. So with the exception of private school tuition and assuming that she continues to work there through their graduation – we live off of a very um, um, small amount of, of my regular income, and you know I think we could we could probably live off of fifty thousand dollars or less a year. And so to have a seventy thousand dollar a year, um, and then granted that's a pre tax income, right? So a pre tax um, cash flow is doable. The, the exceptions, right? Obviously, we don't know what our um, health insurance costs. We have not. It's not something I've calculated. Health insurance is something that. I think kind of needs to get thrown into the equation eventually to see if right. if seventy thousand dollars is enough for us to live off of and 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 pay for those expenses that are generally at least largely covered by my employer. Sure. So let's jump in. I'm just curious. Let's jump into questions or excuse me, numbers for a second on one of these rentals. I know Jace asked a little bit about numbers, but what do you run us through? Maybe one deal. What do you pay for it? How much do you put on it in terms of a mortgage? And and what is the payment? And then how much does it cash flow if you have that available? Yeah, I do. Uh, let me pop open. So the most recent one that we bought. Is this and, the one that you said you could not say no to? I could not. I could not All say right. No. All right. Good. I'm okay. excited. So, so the, I want to say the asking, the asking price, I, should, I wonder where it went, um, but the asking price was somewhere around 188, I think. You know, we kind of went back and forth on the purchase price. There was a seller um, seller paid, um, closing costs for up to a certain amount, but because it was an investment property, um, and this is probably just unique to my lender, but because it was an investment property, we were limited to, I think three and a half percent or or 2% or some weird percentage of the purchase price was the most that we could accept. So I think I came in at 180 because there were plumbing and electrical issues in the home. And they said, no, they wanted to go, or maybe they said yes, but or they, they think they came up and then they were not going to pay any any of the closing costs. So I came up for four or five thousand. I think I came up five and then or came up four and then asked for the thirty six hundred dollars in closing costs. So to them, it looks like I gave them a four hundred dollar concession, but really that was four thousand dollars that I didn't have to pay out of pocket because I was going to borrow that money anyway. 
So it was less money I had to come out of pocket. So I came out of pocket, I think 185. Well, not, I didn't come out of pocket 185. So we. Right. That was your, that was your, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting take, right? What you just said is, right? I mean, it's different than saying I buy the house for 180 and, and cover the closing costs. Yeah. Right. Because. Because then you have me, to, you get a smaller me, loan and you have to pay for the closing costs. The difference between 180 and 184 was about $30 a month in cash flow. Right. So, but I would have had to come out of pocket four grand. So instead, I kept my four grand and came out thirty bucks a month in cash flow. Like so mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. Um, so you you get it for one eighty five, and then how big was one eighty four? Yeah, it was one eighty four or something to that effect. So I paid forty five thousand dollars down was the down payment, and we mortgaged um, one thirty five. I guess we can do the math real quick. So it was one eighty. I'm missing something. Maybe it, maybe I went down 175 and came up, or 176 and came up. But anyway, so were you were you right at 20 percent down, or a little bit more than uh, that? I was at 25 percent. Okay, 25 percent down. So, yeah, so yeah, 25 right. um, percent. Again, my closing costs were very very small, about 800 dollars. Um, we originally had a rehab budget of of 10 grand. Again, this house didn't need any work other than plumbing and electrical stuff. So so we had it was still a 10 thousand dollars worth of um, estimated work. We only spent fifty five hundred dollars in closing costs, so we're out of pocket fifty one three hundred, right? So fifty one thousand. The rent we listed it for twelve fifty, and um, had a pet fee thrown in there. So we got it rented four days after I listed it for thirteen hundred dollars a month. Wow! So um, the uh, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance comes out to seven hundred dollars and eight cents. Now, what I don't do, or and, and I haven't done for a while, is I don't set aside an additional monthly amount for vacancy and repairs and any kind of capital expenses because I built into this a a cash reserve that I keep on the properties. And so with this, I, I keep um, three months for each of the properties, right? So across that over six or four, five properties, uh, you know, it's several thousand dollars that we hold for a reserve. Granted, I have never in 10 years, almost 11 years, had a vacancy that I didn't induce, right? So if I intentionally kept a home vacant for a month in order to completely rehab it um, or upgrade it uh, or do all new plumbing or something, right? So I've, and I've only done that twice, So, but I've had zero vacancies in 10 years. So that's not a big concern of mine. Usually it's the, oh, we need to replace a water heater or a furnace goes out or something, something that's going to cost several thousand dollars, you know, three sure. or four thousand dollars. We, we have the reserve available for that, and then we'll build that back up over time. And I do that by just not, not keeping the cash flow. And even then, I don't personally keep the cash flow. We save all of it, you know, after business expenses and those kinds of things, right? So anything that's left over gets saved and essentially helps us be in a right. position to, to buy again. So, so again, 51 total invested, so 25% down in closing costs, $700 um, so it's thirteen hundred dollars in, seven hundred dollars out. Uh, so it's just it's like five ninety nine. So it's six hundred dollars monthly cash flow, seventy two hundred dollars a year. So that's a fourteen percent return on my investment. Yeah, cash on cash, right? The seventy two hundred divided by the fifty one thousand. So six hundred you're cash flowing a month. And then what about their other? What about like insurance and property taxes that, that's, and that's any of the other fixed yeah, costs? Tax. Taxes and insurance is all included in, in the uh, seven hundred dollar payment. Oh, so, the more, seven, so they escrowed for it. Yeah, yeah, I escrowed. Okay, okay, so, okay, nice. Yeah, good for you. So yeah, and then you got yeah seventy two hundred plus your principal pay down, right? Which is going to be a few hundred dollars a yeah, month. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I have five sixty in here, but it's that's principal and interest. 
So in a way, I mean, I look at this and you're, it's like, okay, on a 15 year almost, because you have such a big cushion, you could almost cover the payment. So in a sense, is that what you look for? Like cash yes. flow equal to your, your mortgage payment? It seems about what this is here. Well, that's just this one. <laughs> I wasn't looking for that, but when, when I run the numbers and when I ran them, I was running it with either a thousand or $1,100 rent. So it was a little more conservative on the rent. I was a little more conservative on the mortgage. Like my mortgage payment, I estimated a little bit higher. Insurance was a little bit higher. Taxes was hard on this one because the county had a, uh, a $45, I think a year taxes because the person living there was elderly and had some tax waivers or whatever. So it was really hard to, to figure that one out. So I just took some other other properties nearby to figure out what the, the taxes were going to be. But even then, I think I was still looking at a 12 or 13% return on investment. So then we just, we made the offer and then we went and looked at the house. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we made the offer based on some very terrible pictures because we knew that if anybody else did what I was doing, they also were going to come in. And not only were they going to come in with with a um, either the same offer or like an all cash offer, because we've done that where um, even before right. this, we, we did, we put an offer on a duplex and someone came in $25,000 more with a 50% down payment and they're going to waive the all sorts of things. And I'm like, I can't compete with that because that's just the kind of market right. that it is. Right. What was your interest rate on this? Um, I'm just curious what they're giving you on investment properties. I want to say this was 3%. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So I, mean, I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. Just big picture here because I know we're running short on a little time and there's a couple other things I, I really want to get to. But big picture, I mean, is this doable for the average person? Do you feel like it was hard to find these deals? What about the people that say, hey, I don't want to be a landlord, right? I don't want to manage. I mean, what's your overall take here with five of these rentals? Obviously, it's done well for you. Um, so, yeah, even um, which is funny, right? So my own family uh, who watch have, and I've had I think I had one bad tenant. Um, and we kind of lesson learned, right? We, we, we've learned it, but that one bad tenant even scared, um, a family member of ours. Like they don't want to, they don't want to even do that because, you know, they might get put in a bad situation where they either have to evict or put lots of money into a house. And, and I have to explain to them like, Hey, you know, that's, we kind of set ourselves up for, for that particular situation. And that's not always the case, but I think people really stick to, or, or that those bad situations tend to be the most prominent, even though they're probably not very common. And because I've had, you know, one in 10 years and we kind of walked into it, like we should have seen it going into it. But, and that was, and I, you know, that was just a, you know, mom and two daughters move in, one daughter moves out, another friend moves in, a boyfriend moves in, the mom moves out, right? So these very weird uh, dynamic uh, scenario where we're like, yeah, we probably won't do that <laughs> right, again. Right, um, right, right. So, but yeah, so people I think are, are kind of scared to rent a house or, and it's hard, right? So I have had the privilege of serving in, in, the, in our military and had been able to buy a home zero down. Like I've had to have no down payment whatsoever. That kind of makes it nice. I also bought some of my homes in, in probably the most the best opportunity times, you know, 2013 was a really good time to buy a home, but that's just, I didn't know what I was doing, right? I didn't know I was buying in a down market. Um, I just bought because I needed a home and that was it, right? Need a home, go buy one. 
whether it's zero down or 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 three and a half or or whatever you know you need for an FHA, I think it's doable. But it's only doable if if you aren't you know spending your entire paycheck. If you you know s- live live below your means, you know, like don't don't spend everything you make. Don't buy the you know the Mercedes. Right. I can't tell you how many times right. I show up at work and I have people in my office that have cars that are worth that are their loans are bigger than some of my mortgages. It's, it's outrageous. Mm-hmm. So what's the plan going forward? Is it to keep acquiring? Is it, do you ever think, Hey, I should scale up and buy small multis and like duplexes or quadplexes, or are you happy with the numbers and the results you're getting from the single family? We're, we're happy with the results. We do. My wife and I do discuss the possibility um, of growing, but at the same time, I th- we're happy where we're at. The plan, the five-year plan is to pay them off. Now, if something comes up, Sure. I'm going to run the numbers. And if it works, it works. I'm going to go for it. But we're not actively seeking uh, more properties. We're always venturing and talking to people. And and if something just comes up, then it comes up. And that's what happens. It's just, that's the beauty of the opportunity. But again, the current plan is to pay them off um, in five years. And we're, we're kind of on track to at least back on track to pay off the the smallest mortgage um, by I think September now. Awesome, man. You've done a phenomenal job for yourself and your family and, and congrats on, on your success. Thank so you. I want to do uh, some, some millionaire questions that we always get into with all of sure. our millionaires. What's the most expensive pair of pants you've ever purchased? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe – I don't even know if I paid the full price. So I have lucky, like a pair of lucky jeans. Actually, I think of a few. Probably no more than $70 and that's that might be pushing it. And that What's was probably ten years. And that was probably ten years ago because I haven't bought a pair of jeans in ten years. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most expensive pair of shoes? I don't know. I I run a lot, and so because I wear through my shoes a lot, I probably don't spend more than ninety dollars on a pair of running shoes. But I go through. Granted, I will probably go through you know two pair a year, depending on my mileage. Do you have a special brand or a favorite brand you buy? No, I I used to. Um, right now, I'm running Hoka's, but. Um, not completely in love with them, but it's just where I'm at right now. Uh, but normally I run I run some flats. Uh, what are they called? Dude, I'm the same, man. I don't know how I feel about those things. Yeah, they're they're a bit thick for me. Yeah, uh, but I'm also getting closer to forty. I've been in the army for 19 years. My my knees aren't just with it. You know, I'm, I've been jumping out of airplanes for the last three years. It's it's takes its toll after a while. So it's it's kind of nice, right? Right now. But I generally like flats. What about the most expensive car? Probably the car I'm in now, um, but I think I paid twenty three thousand for it. I drive a Hyundai. I've always drive Hyundai's. Like I've driven a Hyundai for over fifteen years. Is there a dream car down the road that you want? No. Um, I'll pro- I'll probably just buy Hyundai's and drive them till the wheels fall off each time. Though this this car I have now was the first one that I, I bought. I intentionally bought it and, and bought it cash. No, you know we don't have any any car loans, but so so I, I bought it cash intentionally that way, so so I didn't have to have a car loan. But um, but in the past I always I always did, and uh, I'm glad I don't. Interesting. Do you remember what age you became a millionaire? I guess it'd be fairly. I was 36, well, I was 36 technically. 36. It was just a few months. Just a few months ago we. We crested the mark, and of course, I think we were we were so close earlier in the year, and then uh, I think we were about like nine ninety five, and then it just 
dropped from there. I'm like, well, this ain't going to happen. Not this year. But eventually everything came back. And then, uh, oh, and this house, this house jumped at us, right? So that increased our um, our net worth because I did buy it slightly below the uh, appraised value. Is that something that you track monthly or quarterly or annually? Daily. <laughs> Daily. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I look, so I keep everything on personal capital. Uh, granted, it's been screwy for me the last couple of weeks. All my mortgages dropped to zero for a while. So it looked like I was, my net worth was at like 1.7, but the mortgages finally came back. So I was like, oh, dang, that was, that looked nice for a while. But I knew, I knew the reality of it. Um, but it was, it was just hard because I didn't, I didn't know where we were at first. But, but one thing I have noticed is because really we, I never tracked it until probably this last year. And I don't know if it's like that, that statistics thing, right? Where you're so, when you start, looking at something it will change right it'll change and and so now that we we monitor or i look at it 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 just changes my behavior to like okay well if i get to a certain point and really i'm I'm looking at more of what i'm saving and not necessarily my net worth that's just that was kind of a a nice thing you know high five in the kitchen with the wife like yep we made it and that's it (laughs) you know Hmm. interesting do you know your household spending is annually uh yeah we average right now about 48 a year and that's including that's everything that's including tithing mortgage all of it okay what about as much as you're comfortable sharing range of annual income for for your working life regular again i have my regular w2 i have two different w2s but my regular job's about i think it's 95 the national guard depending on how much work i'm doing uh, can be close to 20. Um, and then I have, um, I'm, I participate in a very small business over in, in Eastern Washington that brings in about 3,600 a year. And then I have about $15,000 in extra. And then of course, rent, which I think right now is about 31, but that's, I think this, this year, um, we had a number of expenses that came up. So I think we actually this year, netted a little more than 15. Okay. So somewhere in the like one, what's that? One forty, fifty, some range. And you started out at what? <laughs> uh, how long ago? I mean, I started working at 15 at $5 an hour. I mean. Where, where did you start working at for $5 an hour at? Uh, at a bank, actually. <laughs> there you go. Okay. I worked at the bank, moving boxes of checks. Awesome. Minimum wage. So Nick, just to wrap up, what would be your words of advice to somebody who's just starting out or, or wants to get started on a journey to financial freedom or rentals or, or, or something of that nature? Oh gosh. It's like, uh, if I could go back and tell myself something, it would, you know, I, you know, if I'm going to buy a home, you know, buy a duplex and rent out the other side or spend less than you make, you don't need the new car. Uh, yeah, and, and then buy a duplex before you have a family. <laughs> um, those are the things that I, I, I'd at least tell myself, you know, because I think those two things, three things would have probably made a difference earlier in my life, um, even though now I'm in a position where uh, I realize all these things and I try to tell other people that now, especially the, the, those younger than me who have the uh, more time. You know, they've got the time to get, get there. Totally. Well, once again, appreciate it. It's Nick with a net worth of $1 million. And really, we didn't even get into it, to your pensions and how those are valued. So definitely a multimillionaire probably. Thanks for coming on the show today. 
Yeah, thanks, Jason Clark. I appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.